then may I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So this is the third in our sermon series this Advent season on the theme of longing. Two weeks ago with Steve, we were longing for God to restore and revive his people. Do you remember that earnest plea repeated several times in Psalm 80? Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. And then last week with Rob, we were longing for God to make himself known. Remember Isaiah's almost desperate prayer. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah pleads for God to come and be Emmanuel, God with us. Today we're going to be longing for God's new creation with the help of the Apostle Paul and the section of chapter 8 of his letter to the Romans that we just heard read to us. Actually, if you've got your Bibles open, just look back a few verses before at the passage that was read to us. Verse 9, Paul says that as Christians, the Spirit of God lives in us. The Spirit, verse 11 who raised Christ from the dead and who will also give life to our mortal bodies. Which means that at the climax of history, we will be resurrected and taken up into glory with Christ. Also, Paul tells us in verse 14 that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who is the, the guarantor of this relationship with God. It's the Holy Spirit who puts Jesus' own intimate name for his Father, Abba, on our lips too. So that we can share Jesus' relationship with the Father. We are adopted into God's family. Nowadays, I suppose, we are most familiar with the adoption of infants. But in Roman culture, it was normally adults who were adopted. Most famously, the Emperor Augustus, who's mentioned right at the uh, beginning of our, our, our Bible stories about uh, the nativity. The Emperor Augustus was adopted by Julius Caesar. But, you know, normally it was something like a former slave, for example, who might be adopted by the family that he once served faithfully. And the purpose of adoption was usually participation in and, and inheritance of the family business. So it is with those who are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is a spirit not of slavery, but of adoption. And we become fellow heirs with Christ in the Father's family, the Father's family business. We're given the privilege of playing a part in fulfilling God's purposes for the world. And we are entrusted with responsibilities. So what is the family business? What is our inheritance in Christ? Well, nothing less, Paul tells us, verse 21, than to liberate the creation itself from its bondage to decay and to bring it into glorious freedom of the children of God. That's our role. This is what, verse 19, this is what creation is waiting in eager expectation for us to do, for the children of God, that's us to be revealed in glory. Now we live in an amazing world. We re read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And who are we to disagree? It's a world of enormous potential, to be sure. But is it safe? 
If you know C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you'll probably remember that this is the question. Is he safe? That one of the children, Susan, asks about Aslan, the great lion, the creator and one true king of the world of Narnia. Is he safe? asks Susan. To which the answer is, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. Which I guess is also true of God's creation. It is undoubtedly very good, but it isn't always safe. Think of earthquakes and volcanoes, avalanches, hurricanes, floods and droughts. God's first commandment to humankind, again in Genesis 1, but this is 28, the first commandment was, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, I take the word subdue in the context of a good but sometimes unsafe world to mean to bring it under control. So maybe what God wanted humankind to do was to look after, tend creation carefully. Like looking after a good but sometimes unruly child. But of course we didn't always get it right. Still don't, I guess. There's a fine line between using God's given, God's, God's given resources responsibly in ways that glorify our creator, which is good, and exploiting those resources selfishly and without regard for God or others, which is, of course, sin. And certainly, after over the last uh, two or three centuries of human endeavor, it's been exploitation rather than responsibility that has dominated, with pretty catastrophic results. We've hunted hundreds of animals into extinction. We've destroyed the ozone layer by our use of fossil fuels, letting in radiation from the sun that promotes climate change. We've dumped tons of pollutants into the atmosphere and the oceans. We're destroying the forests that cleanse the air and provide a home for millions of species of plants and animals, God's little creatures, one and all. And the gap between the richest and poorest people in our world gets bigger and bigger. So it's pretty clear, isn't it, that the creation is in bondage to decay and, verse 22, has been groaning in pain right up to the present time. You'll notice that Paul personifies the creation in much the same way as we sometimes personify nature. There's nothing unusual or unscriptural about this. The Old Testament is full of examples. Take Psalm 96, let the, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and all that is in them, let the trees of the forest sing for joy, let all creation rejoice before the Lord. In other words, the biblical view of the creation is of a sentient being, a receptive, responsive, sensitive entity, an organism if you like. And it's with this picture in mind that Paul says in verse 20, the creation was subjected to frustration. Other translations have vanity, futility, purposelessness. You get the drift. 
And it's the same word, actually, that's used in the Greek translation of the book of Ecclesiastes for its famous, or perhaps infamous, opening salvo. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Or in the King James Version, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The 19th century scholar and theologian Charles Vaughan, who was actually once vicar of St. Martin's Church in, in Leicester here, but he once commented wryly that the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on this one verse, Romans 8, verse 20. The frustration to which the creation is subjected is, quite simply, the existential absurdity of life lived under the sun, imprisoned in time and space, with no ultimate reference to either God or eternity. But there is hope. John Calvin pointed out that creation's groaning is not death pangs, but birth pangs. What Paul calls, in verse 22, the pains of childbirth. Now, I, I haven't myself personally ever given birth, so I'm kind of guessing here, but the implication, I think, is that this is not just pain, but pain with a purpose. Pain with a worthwhile end, and that is the glory of new birth. This idea didn't originate with Paul, of course. The expectation that nature itself will be renewed is integral to the Old Testament prophetic vision of the Messianic age, especially, especially in the Psalms and Isaiah. Vivid images are used to express Israel's faith that the earth and the heavens will be changed, like clothing that the desert will bloom like the crocus and so display the glory of God, that wild and domestic animals will coexist in peace, and that even the most ferocious and venomous creatures will neither harm nor destroy on all God's holy mountain. New Testament writers are perhaps not quite as flowery in their poetic imagery, but the same hope is just as evident. Jesus himself spoke of the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Peter spoke of times of refreshing. Paul, in our passage today, speaks of liberation and elsewhere of reconciliation. And John, of course, in Revelation, prophesies a new heaven and a new earth in which God will dwell with his people. Now, it would be futile, I think, and I say this as a, as a scientist, retired scientist, but it would be futile to speculate, let alone to be dogmatic, about how biblical and scientific accounts of past and future reality correspond or harmonize. But the biblical promise of the renovation and the restoration and the transformation of nature is plain, including the, the eradication of all harmful elements and their replacement by righteousness, peace, harmony, joy and security. How will this new creation come into being? Well, again, we should be cautious about pressing for details, primarily because the future glory is way beyond our human imaginings. But although we must be careful not to impose 
scientific thinking on Paul, we can still hold to his sequence of present suffering and future glory. Each verse of Paul's description expresses this. Creation, creation's subjection to frustration in verse 20 was in hope. The bondage to decay in verse 21 will give way to glorious freedom. The pains of childbirth in verse 22 will inevitably be followed by the joys of new birth. So there will be both discontinuity and continuity in the regeneration of the world, just as there will be in the resurrection of our bodies. God's material creation is not going to be destroyed, but rather transformed, liberated, and suffused with the glory of God. When will all this happen? Well, Paul tells us that the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Who are the children of God? Well, we are. You, me, the church throughout the world. The church, past, present, and future. The church is the hope of creation. The created order longs for the freedom and glory of the children of God, revealed at the end of the age. But hope involves suffering before future glory is achieved. The creation groans because of its decay and futility. We, the church, also groan as we wait for what Paul calls the redemption of our bodies, being taken into glory with Jesus when he comes again. And it, in this now-but-not-yet state, we can identify with the frustrated cry of creation. Indeed, the pain of creation may be more than we can bear, but Paul assures us that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, interpreting our prayers and responding with groans that are too deep for words. We are bearers of hope because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, in the church. And the church lives in the midst of a broken creation as a sign of hope, as a communicator of hope. Our privilege as co-heirs of Christ is to turn the groaning of creation into the labor pains of new creation. And in light of this vocation, this calling, Paul assures us that in all things, God is at work to make us like Christ, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we can give hope to a broken world, assured that we are secure in God's love. So let me ask, this Advent, are you longing, really, really longing for God's new creation? Well, of course, the answer is a resounding yes, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like heaven. What's not to long for? But actually, I wonder if your answer, like mine, is more yes and no. Or perhaps more accurately, yes, but not yet. Because aren't there far too many people out there in our communities and neighborhoods, in our circle of friends, and in our families especially, who haven't yet been called by God according to his purpose. 
Churches are not private clubs for members only, nor are they refuges like, refuges like air raid shelters for us to distance ourselves from the suffering of the world. They are communities where the love of God meets a needy world with hope. So this Advent let us recommit ourselves to the work of offering those around us the hope of glory. Amen.